All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 4, Supplemental Episode 6, an interview with Dave Zinman, co-founder of Focalink Media Services, which, if you'll recall, developed the first remote ad server. We previously spoke to his co-founder, Jason Strober. I hope we've done a good job in these interviews of giving you a decent understanding of how online advertising developed and how it functions to underpin the internet as we know it today. Dave gives us some fascinating insights into all this, and especially towards the end of the interview, we get in-depth about how modern advertising has changed and how it functions today. We get into specifically retargeting the modern advertising method that represents the apex of advertising's evolution on the web. It's how Facebook makes all its money, retargeting. So get ready for an excellent master class on how modern advertising works. Oh, and uh, there's a bonus at the end, a little bonus story involving the founding of eBay. And so, Dave Zinman. Dave Zinman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that you do this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's so it's so valuable. We don't we value our history in general, but the internet moves so fast that we lose a lot of it so quickly. So I think it's great that you do these podcasts. Yeah, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of history on, on early computing, the early internet, but every, everything since the internet era started, I feel like, you know, websites come and go and, and people think they're ephemeral, but, you know, there, there's things that are achieved that we need to remember. So that's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. So uh, I like to start out with just a little bit of background, where you came up, uh, where you went to school, that sort of thing. Sure. So I grew up in the New York area, just just north of Manhattan in, in Westchester County. Um, went to college at Tufts and um, actually started started thinking about media stuff when I was at Tufts. I uh, co-founded a political magazine and was very much into into media things. Um, I made a uh, a turn into finance and the finance industry in New York after college. Um, but what got set me set me kind of on the path for ending up in, in online advertising, digital advertising, was 
Uh, I got into business school at Stanford and um, went um, went to the West Coast. And one of my determinations was to kind of pursue my interest in media. Uh, and I just got so lucky that I got into Stanford and in in 1993 started there and that was when the mosaic browser was released and just uh kind of discovered that and and my world definitely changed yeah do you remember uh, you encountered it in college or was it something that that you were uh using for your education or do you do you remember the first time you even encountered the web or anything like that i i sure do yeah yeah no the 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 early days are uh bright memories just because it had such an impact on me but i remember um playing with the mosaic browser in the computer lab at the stanford business school and funny funny thing i remember when i applied to business school kind of if you're applying to stanford you tend to apply to harvard and i look back and when i was at stanford the Harvard Business School computer lab consisted of computers that had AOL on them. And AOL was a walled garden back then, did not connect to the web. And uh, I would have missed out. I literally would have missed out on, on the experiences I had. But I, I was playing with the Mosaic browser. I remember speaking to the um, one of the IT people there and asking, how could I get this on my laptop? Because um, I had a, a Mac PowerBook uh, from 1993. And I figured out how to... Uh, get my modem working and get it at home and, and install the browser. I remember the day I first got the browser connected through Stanford's computer lab from my from my home, and I ran out of my room and grabbed my roommate, and I said, you've got to see this. This is the World Wide Web. You know, you've got to see this thing. It's going to be the next big thing. And he comes in, he looks at it, and he says, well, because uh, he was looking for a job at Nike, and he said, well, does Nike have a website? And I went to Nike.com, and there was no site. Uh, there was no site for Nike. And he said to me, well, look, if Nike's not doing it, it can't be big. So <laughs> you're obviously on the wrong track, Dave, you know? But, uh, yeah. So is it, are... is it, is it that interest in the web that starts to turn you in this direction? What you said that you had an interest in media in general, what, what sort of leads you to, to starting an advertising company essentially? So, uh, at least for me, I was the, the co-editor of our business school newspaper and we didn't have a website, and this was 1994, so uh, nobody had a website. We built the first um, website for a business school newspaper. That's a pretty random distinction, but it was fun at the time. And just going through the experience of thinking, okay, well, we sell ads in our print paper. How do we, how do we get ads for this website that we're creating for our business school newspaper? What do we need to do to generate revenue? And we didn't have much success doing it, but we learned a lot. Um, and just the experience of doing that and thinking, you know what, this may be a whole new field. I mean, there, there were the number of uh, the, the sort of the exponential growth in the number of websites and the number of web users at that point was so fast. I mean, it went from virtually zero to in the tens of millions pretty quickly. And so it was pretty clear that there were going to be lots of eyeballs online and me being just interested in media it's it's pretty clear the whole point of media is to aggregate eyeballs to sell them to advertisers and so i just i just thought my god there's going to be need there's going to be a need for technology to support this so um that was that was what set me down the path and did did you have a, a technology background at all were you a, a programmer or an engineer or anything you know i wasn't i was a liberal arts major but in high school i was lucky enough to have taken 
you know, all the uh, lots of computer classes. I took a, you know, took classes in Pascal and Basic and assembly language and, um, you know, so I was I was very computer literate, but definitely not an engineer. So, um, so I, I partnered up with a, a guy who I was going to business school with, Jason Strober, who insert hyperlink here is also uh, done a podcast with you. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, tell me, tell me that story. How, how does the idea come about? How do you guys decide, all right, we're going we're gonna to do this thing? Yeah, so, in, uh, so in, in the fall of 1994, we both finished our summer jobs and didn't really enjoy working for the man. And we loved the web. And so I remember meeting Jason almost every Saturday morning at Jim's Coffee House in downtown Palo Alto. It's, it's no longer there. Probably there's a Starbucks there instead, but it was a great coffee house at the time. And we used to meet and talk about any kind of business we could start on the web. And we we considered and rejected virtually every uh, famous and successful business model out there from um, person-to-person auctions to selling books online to, you know, they would, all of those things seemed obvious and would happen. But the most obvious thing was that there would be lots of eyeballs online and it seemed like it wouldn't be hard to convince somebody to invest in a company that would that would be in charge of monetizing those eyeballs. So do you put together a business plan and, and go uh, make the rounds with the VCs or do you start trying to develop the product first? Well, OK, so we we got to that point. And I, I remember the days pretty well because uh, because they were they coincided with classes. So in April of. 1995, I was starting a class where the main project was to write a business plan. And so I remember that morning sitting with Jason and saying, okay, we have to pick one of these ideas because I'm going to go into this class and I'm going to get a group of people to help me write this business plan. And we're going to get a study group together and we're going to write this business plan and then we will have a business plan when we graduate and we will get it funded. And so we, that's when we picked the idea of being the the advertising, kind of an advertising server. We didn't call it that at that moment, but that's what we were, we picked. Um, that was in April. And then we went through the next three months in the class. He participated in the class, even though he wasn't in the class. We, we all wrote the business plan together. And then um, we finished the class, but the plan needed to be changed for kind of the venture capitalists, uh, uh, that audience. So I remember we sat in the computer lab for about 18 hours, and I think it was June 18th, um, right after graduation or right around graduation, where we sat down and rewrote the entire business plan so it would it would make sense to a venture capitalist year. Um, and, uh, and that was it. That was, the, that was the plan that ultimately got us funded. In fact, I went back and I looked it up because I have my files from back, back in the day. Um, and it's hilarious, actually. It's pretty funny. Um, the first sentence is, Focalink Media Services believes that the proliferation of web technology represents a new frontier in business, advertising, and communications. And it goes on to talk about how we can create ads on websites and target them to users based on various information we can see about them online. And it pretty much lays out what an ad server does. That Those words are almost exactly 20 years old right now. Yes, right. Uh, this was, well, the final version, August 2nd, 1995, which is the, when we got funded. We sort of finalized the, the plan for uh, when Mayfield invested in us. So the, the, the concept is to create what, what would be known as a, as a remote ad server. Just for people that, that might not be familiar with that 
technologically? What what would what does that mean? What does that do for for companies? Sure. So an ad server in general is uh, is a machine that's needed to um, to make internet advertising possible. Virtually every ad that you see online is delivered by an ad server. And what an ad server does is it allows um, it allows somebody to pick which actual ad shows up, where it shows up, how often it shows up, uh, for how long, um, tracks how many impressions, how many clicks, uh, and gives reports to advertisers and to publishers to tell them what happened. So that, that's what an ad server does. Now, the distinction of being remote ad server, or today it's, it's more commonly called a central ad server, um, that distinction is not so much important anymore because pretty much almost every ad server is remote or central today, meaning that um, you don't take a server and put it right next to where your website is and uh, where, where your website is hosted. Generally what happens is everything's in the cloud, right? So there are, um, there are data centers where companies that deliver ads have their servers, and all of them are remote in terms of they're not sitting right next to where the where the website owner um, servers are. So, so today all ad servers are central ad servers. And by the way, we should, we should point out that the company was, was Focalink. Um, right. And so it was the, was it the Focalink media server or ad server? Yeah, it was, it was Focalink media services was the full name mm-hmm. and the ad server was called smart banner, which smart you know, banner. I, right. I, I now regret, but that was the name at the time. <laughs> well, um, no one ever seems to remember these sorts of details, but do you remember, uh, you know, when you launch uh, who your first clients are or even like what your first ad was, who, who, you know, I can't even pin down, you know, whatever, what the first banner ad served. We, it's close to being AT&T that, that ran on, on uh, um, uh, Wired's website. Yes, on Wired, on right. Wired, yeah. Um, but do you remember anything like that? Any details of the first? Sure, client? of course. Yes, I mean, and I remember all the all the all the gory details. So before we actually got our first paying client, we we basically wanted to just test ads. So we found a website um, for this guy that was selling condoms online. It was called Condom Country, <laughs> and then we built an ad for the guy and just started running it and. And measuring clicks, and uh, one of our one of our summer interns, who later became a venture capitalist, designed the ad himself. Um, this is the summer '95, and that was one of the first ones I remember. Now, in terms of paying actual customers, very early on we had uh, we had uh, both Intel and Saturn, which is a a car division of GM at the time. Um, we had both of them running ads for us, and so those would be really first customers. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, the the first ad we ran, I I'm pretty sure was from Condom Country. When you're approaching uh, customers and clients, you know this is right at the beginning, so I have to assume that they're they're doing this sort of like as an experiment, as a lark. Um, were, did you have a hard time convincing people to 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 give this a try? Yes, definitely. We we were early. I mean, 1995 is very early to go to an advertiser and say, hey, you need to, not only do you need to think about buying ads online, but you need an ad server to track your performance and to improve the results you get. Um, and that was one of the challenges in our business. I mean, ultimately, the the company was successful in that we had a financially successful outcome. We got sold in 1999, so around $200 million. So it was a, a positive outcome. But it could have been much bigger um, had we 
had we uh, known everything we know today about what what we should be doing. But certainly, the, the toughest one of the toughest parts was getting advertisers to buy in early. In fact, I remember going to a meeting at Saatchi, which is one of the big, still still one of the bigger ad agencies in America. Um, and I was I met with the head of the New York office for Saatchi. This is 1996, and I did my pitch, and I'm you know precocious twenty something, coming and doing the pitch, and and the guy looks at me and says. Um, you know, I was kind of hoping this would all happen after I retire. <laughs> like that, that was literally the reaction from the guy. And, you know, he was probably right because he retired a couple years later. So, And no one, no one wants the revolution to come while they're still around, I guess. Right, exactly. Can't I just have somebody else deal with this? So uh, early on, what is uh, – Jason had said that, you know, a lot of the sophisticated analytics and, and data tracking that we're familiar with now – wasn't actually feasible at the time. So what sort of what sort of data and tracking are you guys able to do for the clients aside from I guess just click through rates? Right, right. Yes. It it was it was tougher. You know, there were there was very little focus on conversions. And that was true really until the late nineties. There were, there was very little focus on that. So I, all all they all they're really caring about is just what the what sort of action the ad's getting, they're not worried yet about tracking through to actual sales and conversions. Correct, correct. That really, that the world changed with, um, with uh, paid search when, um, when it became possible to track all the way through to conversion and, and websites got advanced enough that we started to, consumers started to feel confident putting their credit cards in online. I mean, back in the mid-90s, there was very little actual e-commerce being done, so... Um, there weren't very many visible transactions online. I can tell you, because I checked, uh, again, this is from our uh, business plan here. It's funny, so I'll read it. This, mm-hmm. this one sentence about what we were saying we were going to do tracking-wise. We said, Focalink can improve the productivity of all web advertising space by targeting ads to customers based on the time of day, domain name, previous page viewed, and user hardware operating system and browser employed. So basically, at the time, we were targeting based on all of that header information that typically comes along with any HTTP call. Mm-hmm. So you know, a user requests an image from our server, and we look and we see you know, what browser they were using, what time of day it was, what, what previous page they came from, the referring URL. We can see something about their hardware and their operating system. And that, that was what we used to do the targeting, in addition to, obviously, what page they were on 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 one of our publisher sites. But obviously this is way before, um, you know, being able to, to figure out who someone is or their age because there's no social media yet to, to give you those clues and and there's no behavioral tracking. You, you're not able to follow people around the web yet, right? Oh, yes. First of all, the use of cookies. So the cookie was invented in August 1995, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. I remember right. That was by Netscape. Right. And so it was only for the Netscape browser at the time and it wasn't employed yet by websites to track users. It, it was it was soon to come. So within a couple of years, um, it was it was pretty well understood that advertising could use these cookies and, and use them to identify users and create some some notion of state of a user. Uh, but but back in 1995, that wasn't that wasn't possible. And so you couldn't you couldn't really count unique visitors. You couldn't. Um, identify that this was the same user that had been seen on some other site before. Um, so yeah, you didn't you didn't know very much about the user. And actually, 
what you said, this is going to sound dumb, but that had never occurred to me before. You know, when you, in 1995, 96, there's no guarantee that Saturn or anybody like that really has a web presence. So they're really only doing brand advertising. Of course, there couldn't be convert. What what if there's not a website to even follow through to say, OK, they got to our landing page or they definitely wouldn't have had, OK, this this resulted in a sale or anything at this point. Right. Right. I mean, even if you had gone to if you were surfing the web in 1995 and you went to a site like, for example, Nike's site. I know Nike had a site by 1995, mm -hmm. but it just, it was like a brochure, you know, at best a catalog, but there wasn't any way to take action. Maybe, you know, the first thing that would have been available would have been a store locator. Uh, but there's, there would have been no uh, e-commerce transactions taking place. I mean, you, the, um, the consumers weren't comfortable putting credit cards in online. The, the advent of, of HTTPS and secure surfing was new, and that all needed to be baked into browsers and into websites. And there, there was a lot that, that hadn't quite happened yet. So there were early e-commerce sites for sure. So um, you know, one of my one of my roommates founded eBay, and he, you know, they that was an e-commerce site from day one, um, and that was really launched in 1996. But that was very early. That was that was the early days. So you had mentioned that just in passing that you feel like uh, Focalink could have been bigger. Um, tell me a little bit about how Focalink evolved, you know, going forward into the sale, that sort of thing. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, in hindsight, you can always see uh, the paths that you could have taken. Um, and, you know, a good, um, a good way to compare, what, you know, how successful um, you could have been is to look at your cohort, the companies that were started around the same time. There were many, many companies founded within a year or two of when we founded our company. Um, and obviously, the vast majority of them didn't have a successful outcome. That's just the way things work with startups. But there were, there were a few successes. So, for example, like DoubleClick, which started right around the time that we did, um, ended up getting public. Um, and they, you know, they were worth a couple billion dollars um, around the, the era of 2000. Um, so that's like a 10x um, improvement over our outcome. Right. So I think you know if you think about it like a venture capitalist, you know we had a we had a single or a double, and, uh, and double click had a home run. And I think some of it, uh, one of the one of the key um, notions was that uh, when Jason and I came out of business school and we were we were working on the business plan for Focalink, we decided to focus on advertisers. And, and deliver solutions for advertisers because we thought, well, let's go where the money is. You know, kind of the um, that whole notion of you know, let's 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 follow the money to its source and then let's serve those people. Uh, but what I think we didn't understand about about the publishing industry and the media industry is that it's the media properties themselves that have to make the first bets and have to invest in new things because they have to go and get the money from the advertisers. The advertisers can afford to be lazy and wait. Uh, the advertisers don't need to invest in technology first. And so when you see the, if you look at our industry, for example, you can see the, the, the biggest successes are all on the media or technology side and not on the agency and advertiser side. So the agencies for the most part today look a lot like the agencies of old in that they're a service business. And the 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 uh, the way that they're valued by investors, their multiples are not as attractive as a company that's either creating content and creating audiences and leveraging technology to do that, or 
or a technology company that's enabling um, the delivery of ads or the targeting of ads in some way. And so I don't think we fully appreciated that. And I think uh, we, we missed a shot at it because we had one engineer when we started and we decided to focus on advertisers. And I remember going to a meeting with, um, with a, a guy I was at business school with who was a year behind me. And he had his summer job in 1995 working for a small internet company, 20 people at the company. And he came to me and said, oh, you know, we need an ad server, basically, is what he said. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't use those words because he didn't know what he was looking for, but he needed an ad server. And, and I remember our reaction was, you know, we can't build an ad server for you as a publisher when we're building an ad server for advertisers. And it's just too much work and we don't have enough resource. And so we said no. And that little startup turned out to be Yahoo. Mm. And Yahoo bought a lot of ad servers from, uh, from NetGravity. And at one point, they were working with DoubleClick. And, right. And it was emblematic of something we should have picked up on, which is that the publishers need the ad servers just to deliver ads and, and track them for advertisers. So if they want to get money, they need the ad server. The advertiser could have waited and said, you know, we don't need our own ad server. We'll just rely on the publisher's ad server. And someday when we, when we have a lot of money being spent through our ad agency, let's say maybe then we'll invest in an ad server. And so, so we just allowed other companies to go after customers that grew faster and were willing to spend more money on technology. Hmm. Um, so I think that was the kind of the key to the, the different paths that we took versus the most successful companies in the space. But you've uh, largely stayed in, in advertising your whole career ever since. Um, I'm, you've been uh, with, was, uh, ooh. Yeah, a bunch of companies. I mean, I, yeah. I'm trying to go through the list. Yeah, you you don't need to go through the whole list, but uh, there I I got more serious about getting back into the industry after after I sold my company um, to CMGI mm -hmm. and kind of watched the industry uh, contract quite a bit in when the bubble was bursting in, in 2000 2001. I left and did other things for a couple of years and and came back in 19 in 2005 um, when I when I worked for a company called Blue Lithium. Um, I was hired in as the um, as the head of product um, to help them figure out how to better leverage technology. They were an ad network, and um, and eventually ended up becoming general manager for the for the ad network in the U.S. And it was uh, it was a great experience and got me back into the, a business that I loved. and And we got bought by Yahoo in in 2007. And I ended up running the the display advertising business for Yahoo in North America, and that was. A phenomenal experience. I went from running, you know, in Blue Lithium, we were doing maybe 60 million in revenue, which is great for a startup. But I ended up at Yahoo running a 1.6 billion dollar business. So it was it was a it was a it was a great growth experience for me. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, okay, given those credentials, I have a, a fairly open, two, two fairly open-ended questions for you. The first one, I'm sort of developing a, a personal theory that obviously in the dot-com era, it was a bubble and it was destined to burst at some point. But I'm, I'm, my theory is, is that sort of it was the, the collapse of the ad market that was sort of the trigger of the bubble bursting. Do you, do you feel like maybe there was, there's any truth to that at all? Um, in some ways, yes. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it exactly that way, but I'd say yeah, it had a lot to do with it. I think I was there at what my company, we changed our name to Ad Knowledge, and I was at Ad Knowledge when we started on that rapid growth phase that had a lot to do with the bubble. And the kinds of customers that we were getting as, as a, a, for ourselves were a lot of business models that hadn't yet proven themselves. So a lot of the companies that were paying for our services were companies that themselves were not profitable, had not shown, had not shown a proven track record of growth over time. And, and when, when the bubble burst, really what, what was happening was a lot of these companies were going out of business. And so by having, you know, the, the emblematic like Pets.com as a good example, they were a customer of ours. And when Pets.com goes out of business, not only does it tank investor confidence in a whole sector of the economy, but they were spending a lot of money to generate visitors to their site. And they were using technologies like ours to help do that. And so we started losing customers when a lot of these companies started going under. So there's a ripple effect. If you kind of take out a whole sector of the economy, then all of the services that that sector employs also will suffer. And uh, so you can, you can imagine that eventually it extended out even to the most healthy of the companies. So you saw, if you look at Yahoo's revenue around that time, you could see this big drop in revenue because they're, they're suffering because they probably had a lot of advertisers that went out of business. Right. Um, and then once... Once you have, you know, for example, look at like um, a traditional business like insurance. So there were people selling insurance online. A company like eCoverage existed in the late 90s, and they sold insurance online. But what happens when they can't get as much investment is they spend less money to acquire customers, and then it becomes less competitive for State Farm and for the traditional guys, so they spend less in advertising. And so the the ripples of this were, were pretty... Uh, tremendous, and it happened really fast because there was just a general consensus all of a sudden from public investors and private investors that it, it didn't make sense to invest in these business models anymore um, unless they really proved themselves. And so the money dried up for these companies really quickly, um, and that had a, an effect on everyone else. So I don't say I don't know if it was just advertising, but that advertising was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, so my other open-ended question, and this might be even even more unfair, but um, so how, I, I, you know, clearly Google came along and, and revolutionized online marketing and online advertising. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, how, the, how the scene had changed, how the industry had changed when you came back in 2005? Sure, yeah, things had really, had, had really changed. Um, and I, I think um, the technology, the underlying technologies hadn't changed that much, but the, the marketplace had changed. And I, I want to challenge you on one thing, which is 
Google obviously had a lot to do with it, but they did not invent the paid search model. Right, that was go-to. You know? and, yeah, it was go-to. Yeah. And go-to took all the slings and arrows from everybody that said, that's ridiculous. How can you how can you let people pay to show up in search results? You know, you're influencing the, the quality of the results. And so they had to deal with all of that. Um, and, you know, it became Overture and got bought by Yahoo. Mm -hmm. And that, so they were the real pioneers. Now, Google copied that model. And the reason why Google is so important, obviously, is because, because they ended up being so successful at getting so much volume of search. They ended up being the vehicle that a lot of advertisers use to learn how to, how to do paid search and what performance, digital performance, looked like. Meaning, if you're an advertiser and you're buying traditional media or yellow pages or direct mail, you were very used to trying to measure results, but you hadn't done it digitally. And because Google was the biggest outlet available in the early 2000s to buy this kind of media, Google probably educated a lot of advertisers about, okay, measuring clicks, measuring conversions, thinking about digital as a performance medium. And so the business that I got back into, and it was really because the job before that one where I worked at Zinio, which was a digital magazine company, they're still around. Right, right. But um, I was trying to, part of my job as marketing was trying to get people to sign up for digital subscriptions. And so I started working with a lot of these tools that, uh, like Google and uh, advertising.com, which is an early uh, performance-based ad network for, for display. Um, and just seeing those tools and realizing that it was possible to measure performance in a way that you couldn't in the late 90s made it pretty clear there was a, you know, a big opportunity um, and the industry was going to come back. Um, so going to Blue Lithium was kind of a no-brainer. That company was a rocket ship and it was doing so well. And, um, and uh, when I got there, uh, that was when, I remember um, in, in 2006, uh, when we first tried retargeting, that was... That was a big deal. That was like um, that was a light bulb moment for mm -hmm. sure. Um, I don't know if you've talked about it on your podcast before. What retargeting? No, is. No, not but, yet, uh, um, because obviously we haven't gotten there chronologically yet. But for for the yeah. listener, it's hey, have you gone to a website yesterday? And then when you go on Facebook next time, all of a sudden there's an ad for that website. That's that's retargeting. Right. Exactly. Everybody knows what's happening. Right. People know. Oh, I, I'm seeing these ads because I went to this site before. I think the genius of it is that it's so simple and direct. Um, the original kind of user targeting online and the stuff that we started to do in the late 90s and early 2000s was we just want to observe where you go and learn something about you and know that you're a sports fan or know that you're interested in skiing or something. And then we'll target ads to you in that way. We're, we're almost collecting behaviors and then trying to bucket you into behavioral buckets. And that's really what web, you know, digital advertising targeting was. Um, but what happened with the advent of paid search was you could get so much more finite than that. You could identify based on keyword that you were looking for this particular, um, you know, type of ski trip. Or, you know, you could know at a very finite level what someone was interested in. And so retargeting was a way for display to do that as well, where we could observe you going to an advertiser's site and looking at a product. And once we saw you look, looking at a certain product, then, well, then it's really easy. We'll just serve ads to you related to that product. Um, and that's retargeting. And, uh, and I remember the moment in March of 2006 where uh, I had just gotten the results from a test we did at Blue Lithium with T-Mobile where we were running a behaviorally targeted campaign, just trying to find people that were of the right age to buy uh, cellular, cellular phone packages. 
And then at the same time, we were running a campaign targeting people that had been to T-Mobile's website before and just serving them a T-Mobile ad after they'd gone to T-Mobile's website. And the results were, I mean, it was like night and day. Mm. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was magic. And I had this graph that showed it. And I ran down the hall to our CEO, as the guy I was working for, and I just said, we've got to do this. This is what we need to do. Uh, we spent the next four months kind of retooling the platform and re-educating our sales force and getting to market just to sell retargeting. Uh, yeah. The, um, the I'll, I'll, I'll ask you one final open-ended question. Obviously, the, the environment today now is mobile, 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 right? Sure. So give me a sense of where you think advertising specifically like this this industry specifically is is going is is are we going to get to the point where mobile can be as effective as as you as we've gotten online so far are we just waiting for that go to google moment to to where it actually happens has someone invented it yet where are we going right right you know this is this is all very familiar and having seen this happen with adoption of desktop internet um, the adoption of mobile internet is unmistakable, and you look at the trends in anybody's data. Like the company I'm at now is called Infolinks, and we we provide a solution for publishers to help them make money from ads. And we measure how many visitors to all of our publishers come from mobile devices versus desktop devices, etc. And you can see the growth in mobile. It's it's astounding. It really is. Um, and the the one thing that makes it similar to uh, kind of all these adoption curves we've seen online is that the consumer's in control, right? The consumer decides how and when and in what format uh, they want to interact with content. And, and the consumer is saying very clearly that there are many uses for interactions through mobile devices. And so advertising is going to follow those eyeballs. I mean, that has been true from, from the beginning of advertising as, uh, as an industry, um, so if you if you think about it and you say okay and you know, within ten years let's you know who knows but let's say seventy percent of all um, of all digital interactions are going to be with a mobile device like a tablet or a, a cell phone then what that means is that the advertising that consumers interact with has got to be tailored to those experiences and that's it's no more it's no more complex than that and that the experiences are going to evolve. In, in the mobile world, whether it be in-app or mobile web, and the advertising experiences need to evolve to fit those interactions. So today, still vast majority of digital dollars are spent on advertising that shows up on a, on a desktop or a laptop computer. Um, and to some degree, the interactions will always be a little bit more rich in those devices because they're just a bigger form factor. But, um, but there are so many evolving user experiences that are through mobile devices. And so advertising is rapidly evolving to serve those needs. So it may be that, um, you know, wearables and, and a whole new generation devices that, that aren't phones or tablets uh, become important a few years from now and advertising has to evolve to fit those. But, uh, but the one thing that is always sure and that you start from your home base, what's always true is that where the eyeballs go, advertising will follow. And where people's time goes, that's where advertising Absolutely. Follows. Absolutely. And advertisers, it's not that advertisers go and find these things. It's that innovators create advertising experiences to take advantage of 
this time spent on these devices. And the advertisers will experiment and test. And if they find results from um, these new experiences, they'll, they'll invest in them. So it's not like, you know, Macy's goes out and pioneers how to make their stuff work on Google Glass. It's more that there'll be somebody, whether it be Google or some third party, that will figure out how to put ads in a way that is useful for consumers and they'll go they'll go recruit Macy's to be the first advertiser. Right. So when people complain right now that, that mobile advertising isn't very effective, you're not worried somebody's gonna crack that crack that egg at some point. Yeah, and, and first of all, I, I disagree with that premise completely. Okay. I mean, mo- when mobile advertising, I know people will complain because people will complain about ads, and they should because a lot of ads are not relevant to users, and we can do a better job. But you can measure the results of mobile advertising much more finely than you can TV or radio or print. I mean, it's all digital, right? So mm-hmm. we know when an advertiser spends money on a digital ad and mobile, they actually know what they're getting. They're not speculating. The early days of Facebook was speculation, like you know, mm-hmm. you were paying for likes or shares, mm-hmm. and there wasn't there wasn't a way to connect those measures to uh, to actual business results. But with with the mobile ads you're seeing online now, those advertisers, by and large, are not just wasting their money. They're not they're they're businesses. They're for profit organizations, and they're doing it because they're able to measure some result on the back end. So yes, they may be annoying to consumers, but they're paying off for the advertisers. Well, Dave, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Sure, sure. Happy to do it. And again, I, I want to thank you again. I feel like these podcasts are awesome and they're, they're a great resource. And uh, we're, we're really terrible at preserving our history. Even in Silicon Valley, there are so many um, places and moments that are lost constantly. And the fact that there is something like this is going to be really helpful because someday somebody's going to look back on all of this information and think, my God, we're so glad that Brian was there uh, collecting all of it. Well, I hope so. Well, thank you again. You got it. So typically when I get done with an interview, um, the guests and I still uh, chat, uh, you know, just thanking them for their time and, and, and actually asking them a lot of times um, if there's anyone else they think I should talk to. I've gotten a whole bunch of great interviews uh, just by working down this chain of contacts that we've got going now. And so Dave and I were chit-chatting, and all of a sudden he comes out with this story from his college days about uh, two college buddies that started a, a little website that you might be familiar with. So here's that conversation, which I quickly had him repeat so we could record. Uh, a little preview for our episode on eBay, which should be coming out uh, sometime in the next couple months. Uh, so I went to college with Pierre Omidyar, who is the generally considered the founder at eBay, um, and he was in Silicon Valley at the time I was I was there at his after school, and uh, and he came to me and he had started uh, Auction Web, which was the original name of the site, and it was just it was very nascent, early trading days, um, and had very little traffic, and he wanted to get a business plan together and go raise some money, and he was looking for somebody to help him do that and maybe someone to help him start the company, and I was in the middle of starting Focalink and. You know, we were already venture funded and, and growing, and um, so I I, uh, <laughs> I didn't go and say, oh, what I should have done is said, I'll write that business plan for you, <laughs> but uh, but I introduced him to my roommate, Jeff Skoll, who I went to business school with, and um, and so Jeff and Pierre got together, and um, kind of the rest is history. Those guys 
you know, that company is an amazing story because they executed internally so well with so little resource and they, they encountered this amazing, uh, consumer energy, you know, companies were being founded around eBay. You know, you could go and open up a shop on eBay and start selling your your junk or your treasure or whatever. Um, and thousands and thousands, like hundreds of thousands of businesses were started by eBay. Um, and they tapped into that energy and, and found a way to to navigate through it and, and grow an amazing business. Um, so yeah, I played a very small part in just introducing the two of those guys. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader